Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. Today on the second chapter, I'm speaking with Jillian Broderick. It's not often that you hear someone being called a rising star in their 50s, but at the age of 58, Jill's finding success in both the film and theater industry. When I started, I had all this control in me, suppressed, because the teaching, I couldn't get angry, you know, which you need to be free. Hi, Jillian. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah. Hi, Kristen. Uh, Lovely to be here with you. Tell me a little bit about what's been going on. What's your life like at the moment with everything locking (laughs) down again? (laughs) At the moment, it's pretty quiet. Obviously, we're all in this together. I was quite surprised last year, though, during the first lockdown. I was on production five times throughout the year. So actually, that was quite remarkable. But at the moment, it's just very quiet, isn't it? And, And that's the way it is. I just keep myself sane by going out for walks and just doing a bit of mindfulness, stretching. I stretch every day because that's quite important, isn't it? Yeah. But I just go out walking, put my headphones on and listen to music or podcasts and just be me. Isn't it funny? I feel like I love walking anyway, but it's one of those things that it's become sort of people that that I know never have walked in their lives or not made it a thing. It's just become our lifeline. Like I can just go out for a walk. Yeah, definitely. You see so many people are out walking just to get out to keep themselves sane, I think, and for a bit of fresh air. So thank goodness we could do that. That is a lifesaver. I can't complain about looking outside and seeing sunshine and having the opportunity to walk no matter how cold it is. I'll take it. Yeah, definitely. Indeed. And pick up a coffee on the way, which is always nice. That's true. That is one of the things I miss, though. I didn't know how much I relied on our, I hate to say it, but our cafe culture. So just to go sit and have a cup of coffee would be really nice, too. But I can't complain. Eventually, we'll get there. Yep, we will. We will. (laughs) And how novel will it feel? It'll feel amazing. You went from being a teacher to being an actor. But all this talk about walking has got me thinking about something else I know you do, which is (laughs) athletics and coaching. So I'm going to throw it to that. I'd love to know more about your athletics career and how you became a coach and kind of what you do with that. Yeah, athletics for me, to cut a long story short, go back to when I was 10. And I I remember running around the school field, panting and was out of breath. And I said to my mum, God, I just want to run faster. I just want to, I'm useless. I just want to to be better. And so that's how it all started. I just joined the the local athletic club then. And then I was never uh, a brilliant runner. I was just an average club runner, 800 meters, 1500 meters, but just really enjoyed the social aspect of it. And I think it's a great thing if any child now, if they've got that opportunity to be with a club to do a sport, I think it's great. Uh, And that's how it developed. But talking about the walking, when I was about 18, I started race walking. Oh, wow. I don't (laughs) think I know anyone who's actually done that. First of all, explain, because I think that Mm. there are rules around race walking that are really interesting. Yep, I was like a hip-swinging pedestrian. But obviously, you've got to try and keep... (laughs) Two feet on the ground at once, which is impossible. It it means your heel, as it strikes the ground, your toe has to still be on the ground behind. I feel like when I get tired running, though, I look like that. So it doesn't sound that weird to me. My running is like that now. Definitely, my jogging is like that. Actually, I can jog um, 10 kilometers a lot slower now than when I could walk it many years ago. That's when it became my lifeline and my my blood. And then 
went on to coaching at the age of 44 because of my son. I had two boys and my eldest son seemed to pick up this ability to run cross country and 1500 meters. So we went to the athletic club and rather than just sit there, and I was a teacher at the time, marking my books while waiting for him, I just thought I've got to get out there and I have to coach. It's like they're little triggers that make me do these things. So you coach, do you coach specifically javelin or is it all athletics or tell me about that? Yeah, which is really bizarre. Race walking doesn't, yeah, doesn't seem to be very popular now. <laughs> <Does it? laughs> you don't see many walkers and there isn't the money in walking. I can tell you that, I think. But no, I became a multi-event, so I can coach everything, track and field. But I just specifically went towards javelin at the athletic club, Kingston and Polly. They needed some throw coaches for the juniors. So I, I specifically coached the junior team and have a successful little group. As someone who triathlon coaches, and I have been in my past, mm. or I don't even say in my past because I'm not quitting yet, but I've had some success very much, like you said, as an average club triathlete. I've done some cool things through it, but I'm a big believer and you don't necessarily have to be the best at doing it to teach, but has your javelin skills, have you become like a later in life oh, javelin yes. genius? <laughs> <laughs> No, the most I ended up throwing was 18 metres actually about three years ago. So I was rather impressed with that myself. The club offered you the training. You go with the England Athletics training and the masterclass coaches and you can do it. I think if you've got something in your blood from your youth and you've got that little passion there, that's it's a hobby and it's a passion to coach these kids because you see the delight on their faces. And that's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. I tend to coach adults, but at the same time, it's the same thing when you see somebody that's successful and yeah, it's a really good feeling. Yeah. And I guess it comes naturally to you as someone who is a teacher. So how did you even get into teaching to begin with? That was again, almost by default. I was a late developer in my life with everything. I started my degree at 28. I just went into office work at 18 because of home life. There were certain circumstances. The university wasn't born into our family, mm -hmm. and things like that. But you know, I wouldn't class myself as an academic. But then in my late 20s, I think I just actually, I got into teaching because I just wanted this desire to travel. I wasn't married, I was single. And I thought, if I teach, I can teach anywhere. You know, it's a little bit random. Yeah, yeah. obviously most people would be listening to this, so they can't see my face, but I was just, oh, teaching and travel. It didn't, it's not <laughs> the first career I would think of necessarily. But I was really keen to go to Canada and teach out there okay. and work out there or go to Paris and France because I did French A-level to keep up that. I think you hit 28 and you say, what am I going to do for the next decade? I've got to get off my backside and do something now, something that I'm going to quite enjoy. And I guess I... I teaching dropped in and I just thought, yeah, I think I could probably do that. Let's have a go. So it's very random. I love it though. I love the idea. You know what? I want to travel. So I'm going to be a teacher. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the age of 28, what is it about 28? It, it, there is something, I feel like that is very specifically an age that people change things. And I think I started, mm. did I start running around 28? You, I feel like there's a moment that I don't know what it is, especially maybe if, like you said, you were single and some people probably start having kids around that time, whatever it is, but there is yes, something yeah. that changed your life. I feel right about that time. Yeah. This is every seven years, don't they? So almost like every decade, you do have different things evolve. You change. I think you change quite a lot throughout your life as well. But also, I just think I had the right temperament as well. I just thought I could do, te I could teach, I could do teaching. And I did love it. Loved it. 
So you ended up training as a teacher and how long were you teaching and what were you teaching actually? I did an English and drama with my B.Ed. Well, if I'm going to do a degree, that's another thing. You've got to do something that you're passionate about, something that you love. Did English and drama alongside honours with my B.Ed. So it was great. I got my English and drama and my teaching all together. Killed two birds with one stone. It was brilliant. <laughs> you know, it was the best thing. Then I, I was a multi-teacher. You, you're a classroom teacher. It was primary Okay. But I went into the year six and five. I liked the older children. But then the traveling all, all stopped <laughs> because I met, met the man of my life. That's all right. You can't see me putting my fingers down my throat, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cliche. I didn't expect to be married. You, you can't say I, it was never on, on my, it was never on the cards. I just went with the flow. But anyway, I met this man and we were married within a year. The traveling didn't really happen. <laughs> <laughs> so so I was stuck to teaching in London, in the London suburbs of Lewisham and Forest Hill and, and then back in Kingston upon Thames. So, yeah. And were you actually teaching some drama along with it or was it, like you say, general classroom stuff? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we had the drama productions at the end for year six. That was brilliant. I loved the drama. When I taught literacy, it was just, it's very, it could be quite boring for a lot of kids, English literacy. So I used to try and incorporate then a little bit of drama at the start, which was really nice, like a little bit of hot seating for the kids and getting them to do it on each other to find out more about, even if it was factual or creative writing. And I think it it really helped. It certainly helped. I'm getting quite emotional now thinking about it, but it, it really did help click the start of their writing of the stories. It's so important. I imagine that is something that really would make you emotional though, because you must have been in the mm. same way you're talking about coaching and just seeing the faces of somebody that you're coaching. That's such a pivotal moment of, I don't know, deciding what you're passionate about as a kid and Getting somebody to look at literacy and, and writing from a character's point of view so that they really, that must have been a really emotional thing to be able to make kids like something that was challenging for them to like. Yes, especially if they think I've got to write two pages of, of writing. If they didn't like writing, they had this little imagery put into their minds of this person already. So it just helped, I think, kickstart. I think a lot of other teachers may do it as well. We all have our own methods. But that was a little bit of my personal touch that I wanted to do with them. So you had this passion for drama, but wanted to travel, went into teaching, didn't get to travel. <laughs> <laughs> but then one day the drama thing came to the surface. So you had done some drama as a kid or was it something that was always in your blood? It was, uh, I used to ballet and tap before the athletics. So, and I used to dance around the front room and subject my parents and my brothers to watching me in my black tights and me with singing yeah. I just I, I I don't I've not turned out to be a real singer but I have to say as a kid it was like I sang everywhere I went I still do it's yeah. just, it just doesn't sound great mm. <laughs> yeah I'm not a singer I mean I sing in a community choir we do a cappella, but I just think it's really good your mind and it's just something that you can just really enjoy but yeah I used to come in and sing and I used to learn playing the guitar and I said tonight's performance and then one night I swung my arm up and around during this performance and my hand hit the light and it the wire broke and it started shooting up in flames and we, <laughs> and we were all in the house and it's quick call the fire brigade <laughs> Luckily, it burnt out. So. I was going to say, maybe the reason you walked away from drama as a child was because you were like, I burnt my house down, so decided that it wasn't for me. <laughs> Glad that has a slightly happier ending. 
I think I picked up drama later on. I think my teaching career came to about 2010. My eldest son, actually, I have two boys, they're now 22 and 24. But when they were at secondary school, one got chronic fatigue syndrome and he was 13. So I had to pull away from full-time teaching and just do odd supply because he needed me. I encouraged him and I got him into school. You just had to be there. You just sometimes you think when your kids are teenagers, they don't need that support, but they do. They have other difficulties. And you never know what's going to come. You you don't know what's around the corner, do you, in your life? I gave up full-time teaching and I was getting a bit bored because I was doing some supply work. But my younger son loved drama, loved singing, and he drums. He's the creative one. And it's interesting. The eldest one was the athlete and the younger one is the drama. It's just weird, isn't it, what they take from you? So I used to love watching his school plays, watching them sing. And, and I thought, why don't I give this a go again? Because I really enjoy watching this. I enjoy it. I think that was it. The seed was sown again. It's interesting. Both, both the kind of things that you're doing or that you're passionate about now have come from your kids instead of the other way around. It's almost like you've passed them back and forth. A lot of people, they are an actor as their kids are growing up. So their kids become an actor or family lineage, whatever. You see what your parents do and you think that's the type of career you should have. Mm. Whereas it feels like you saw your kids, oh, instead of sitting here, I'll coach. And that became a passion. Yes, I'm watching my son do drama and wait a minute, I used to love to do that too. Huh. Mm. The world is out there. Why? Uh, how old? I was 50 then. And I thought, yeah, this is, I'm not going to sit on my backside now for the rest of my life. Let's go and see. Let's see what I can do. I guess 50 feels a turning point for a lot of people. <laughs> do you feel like it was a turning point or it just was coincidence that it was the right time? I think it was the right time. I always, I did really always wanted to do it, but also I was quite chronically shy as a teenager as well and didn't have that confidence. Do you know, at the age of 50, I didn't really, I don't really give two hoots about messing it up or getting it wrong because you learn from your mistakes. I can go out there and if I mess up, I go, okay, yeah, I need to do this. I, I, that's what it's like. I think you don't really care because you're driven by yourself and your own passion then. You're, I think you know yourself a lot more. I feel a lot of the women I've talked to for the podcast, there is this moment, whether it's something tragic or difficult that's happened in their lives, or it's just this moment of, you know what, I don't really care anymore. I can just do this. Mm. You care because you're passionate about wanting to do something, but you don't care what people think anymore. It's this beautiful moment when we can get to that stage and go, it's it's time for me to just, yeah, say, screw it and do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If it's messy, it doesn't matter if I get it. This was like throughout my training, which I went formal training at the Actors Temple in Warren Street. I didn't want a degree. I just wanted two years of improvisation, freedom, because the teaching people say to me, my friends, uh, even actors, young actors, go, oh, being a teacher, it must be really easy. But actually, it's not. It was totally different. It is totally different being an actor to, being te- to pretending to be a teacher, as you can probably see. I think it is really different. And I know you have to stand up in front of a classroom and you have to present things, but you're not being asked to be a different character all the time. You're not being asked to learn lines that maybe don't feel as natural for you. Yes. Yeah, it was just interesting. And, and I would say, actually, when I started my training, I had all this control in me, mm-hmm. suppressed because of the teaching, you know, and it was the anger. I couldn't get angry you know, which you need to be free. 
And I would be, I would just didn't like confrontation. I didn't want to approach it. I would just, I want to go back out that door in the Meisner, which was Meisner. I'd just walk through that door. Can I go back? (laughs) (laughs) To that happy place behind the door. Yeah, I imagine because you do have to not show as much of yourself. Whereas with acting, you may be playing a character, but you have to be willing to let, let it, let it go. Let it go. So you had two years of training and you've been out in the world, what, eight-ish Yes, years? eight years, eight years. Yeah, I'm 58 now. And what kind of challenges have you found just coming into this as a second career, starting at 50? I personally, it's going to be very boring. I don't. I haven't come across any real major challenges like the young people. I think they have far more challenges. I think of, of the age I am, there are fewer of us. Probably the main challenge now is my agent is trying to push me to get me more out there rather than just commercial casting. A lot of the work, I think, jobs, as you probably know, Kristen, that you find for yourself anyway, through contacts and connections. Right. The challenge really to become an actor was the training, was actually making that switch to let it all go and to be totally free. That was the, the, I won't swear, the most challenge that I have come across in all my years. But I still didn't care. (laughs) It's funny because before I said, screw it. I was like, this is my non-sweary way to say it. But if by all means. My husband actually has commented. He said, uh, Jill, he said, you never used to swear when you were a teacher. But he said, you haven't stopped. (laughs) Now you're an actor. What is it about actors? Because it is a potty mouth profession. (laughs) Mm. I get into a room with people, anybody involved in the theatre world, especially, it seems like. Yes, yeah. It's a very flowery language. Yes, yeah. So I think that was the real challenge. And then trying to start out on a career where you're right at the bottom of the ladder. And I accept that. And I'm really enjoying it. I don't look ahead and go, oh, I want to be in Hollywood. That's just absolutely crazy. You've got to have goals. Just set yourself small goals and say, actually, ideally, I would like to get onto the West End stage one day. I've got to the cockpit at Merrily Bones. I'm almost there. (laughs) I was just before the pandemic. It's just little steps, I think. And just, just take it as long as I don't give myself ridiculous goals. It might be a way of being defensive. It might be a way of actually protecting myself. Could be. We were talking about this a bit before we started recording, but I feel so impatient all the time because I feel like mm. time is short and you start aging out of one category or roles that you want that you think, oh, I just want to get to that before I'm before I'm too old to be cast as that character or I want to get to that next. For me, it feels like time is more of the essence than it might have been when I was 23 if I would have started whatever age that would be. Do you find that you get impatient or are you really, are you really that much of a saint? <laughs> Obviously, during this pandemic, I've had those thoughts now because I'm going to be, although I'm 58 now, I'm going to be 60 next year. And when I started my journey, I was 50. That's a decade. But I'm thinking 60 is, that's a different role. And I might have to let my hair go grey to get those roles, which I'm thinking about it because I will be too old, definitely if teenage mum, but I'm certainly at the age for adult children. But the roles are, I think, for women. That's the point, isn't it? For the females, it's far less roles for females. They take you in as the active grandmother, older mum, single mum, yet lawyer. I've done a psychiatrist's job, but you are going into another phase. And I am thinking, yeah, have I, am I going to miss the boat? I have a, a male actor friend who is, a few years ago, he was in his mid-30s. And he was very mm. much, oh, I'm not that worried about it. He had started later as well. And he said, I'm not that worried about it because I'm so young. And I thought, wait a minute, I get into it at that age and think, 
I'm too old or yes. I don't like to think that way, but it, but because of like your, what you're saying with the roles mm. around a similar age for a woman feels like, am I going to age out of it? Versus for him, mm. he was young and fresh in his career. Yes. It is still, no matter how much we're, hopefully it keeps changing, but it does feel like you see a lot of roles that just feel more difficult for women or feel less evolved for women. Yes. And men of my age, there's a lot of jobs. There's a lot of work out there. Definitely. And I think to be fair, though, in this short time that you've been doing this, I was spying on your IMDB page and you've done a lot of work, especially you're talking about West End Stage, but a lot of short films and even feature films. And when you look at the starring cast, there's your name. So mm, I'm pretty impressed. Yes. <laughs> I was pretty impressed with looking at your spotlight, Kristen, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> Well, we'll have to share connections so that we can share some of this work. (laughs) Definitely. A A lot of that work, the feature film work, has just come through connections or contacts. There's a wonderful short film called Coming Back by an Italian director called Alessio Rapolti, but it was written by Ivor Badil, David Badil's brother. He's a writer and it's currently doing really well on the European circuit in Italy. It's all in English, but it's all really doing well in Spain and Italy. So that's something I'm really proud of. It was a, it's a lovely short film about conflicts within a family about Brexit and voting for the wrong reasons. But it's not about Brexit. It's about this little triangle of deceit among these three people. It's interesting. For such a short film, how writers can get this arc in, in 10 minutes. That's a great, a fantastic skill to have as a writer. I agree. I think that seeing a short film that's really well written or a short play always impresses me. I don't want to say more. But it definitely impresses me to see Mm. how many emotions, how much storyline you can get in such a short amount of time. And I do think with the way we're going with attention spans and people watching 30 second things and getting bored on Mm. social media and short films, I think it's a place to be. Yes. I think it's something that'll only get stronger. And I'd like to see more on the TV. I agree. I think Netflix has been more involved in short films, which I think is really interesting. I look forward to seeing it because I do think my own attention span is not as good as it used to be. with the way things, you expect these short little bites of things. So Mm, mm. I enjoy watching short films. I also think it's interesting that film is doing well in Europe (laughs) as it's a Brexit film. It's not a Brexit film, but it's a Brexit film. Yeah. Not one festival in England wanted to have it on their finals, but never mind. But I I did go to Rome in uh, October 2019. The production company who are in Rome invited myself and Carl Hughes, who's, who played my son, out to Rome. It was lovely. I had a lovely three days there. I, I'd rather do that anyway. <laughs> when you look on the picture and there's your face and it's such an amazing yes. photo of you and there's the laurel there and that's exciting as well. Yes, no, it's exciting. Yeah. So I'm, I love being part of that. And I think as anybody would. I also have to ask about your Spider-Man fan film. <laughs> oh, yes. Madame Webb. Madam Webb, yes. <laughs> At your service. That's currently on YouTube and it's had like 1.3 million views. You are officially famous. Stop playing yourself down. You're famous. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have to direct Spider-Man. He's having a midlife crisis at 20. <laughs> into back on the right path. And Madame Webb is the only one to do it. So how does it work with with a fan film like that? In so many parts of our world, if we want to take a character or something, there's so many rights around it and it's so difficult to do. But obviously fan films are a bit different. Yeah, Marvel just allow them to be made. They don't need any copyright or anything. In actual fact, I think it just enhances their fan base as well. I don't think Marvel's really struggling, so they could could probably let some of their storylines go a little bit. (laughs) 
was a great character to play, wearing a blindfold and to actually talk and try and follow that Spider-Man around. And, and But it, it seemed to work. I'm definitely putting the YouTube link on the show notes because we all have to watch this. <laughs> Amazing. Joey Lever is the director and he's now currently writing the, the sequel, the number three. And he said he would like Madame Webb back. So there we go. That's the other thing though. You keep saying, oh, I've gotten this work because of connections. And that sounds very privileged, but at the same time, connections only come because you've worked with someone and they've liked working with you enough that they either recommend you or put you in something else. Exactly. And I've had to audition for these people as well. At the level I am, things don't aren't really handed to you on a plate, are they? It's not that industry. You still have to prove yourself all the time. So recommendation, self-tape. I think sometimes you can really connect to certain roles that you're offered or scripts that are given to you. You can see it. And there are a lot of lot of jobs that I haven't got, I think. That's that's I probably only get one in ten at the moment. So I don't really keep a score. I think that's a really good record, actually, especially at the moment, because I know at least at the moment it's very slow. But as you said, you were doing a lot of production earlier in in the pandemic, which is really impressive. From what I've seen, at least so many more casting directors are asking for a larger population to self-tape. So you must have been getting roles that, you know, weren't necessarily that easy to come by. Yes. And self-tape is another thing, isn't it? I'm not bothered by. I'm, I'm quite comfortable doing a self-tape. Now, that's something that, that's the way of the world now. I did that 21-day self-tape tape course last summer. So anybody who's listening who doesn't know about self-tapes is that basically it's just being asked to record something at home so that you have a home audition, but you don't have anybody really directing you. And you usually have to find somebody to read in with you as another actor. So there's a lot of challenges around it. Yeah, the 21-day self-tape thing, it's self-taping every day to practice to get revved up for these self-tapes. Yep. Technical issues as well. Framing. It was it was a great thing to do. That helped put that, you know, that little bug, that irritation you have going, oh, fear. Oh, I've got to do a self-tape because I've got to, I'm just talking to a camera. It, that went. I've actually thought about doing that several times and maybe that would be something that, because I feel like when I get a self-tape, I'm just like, oh, it takes so long. But if you're doing one every mm. day, you don't have time for it. So get over that really quickly. Yep. So my agent's quite pleased. I know. I'm, I don't like to boast. I hate promoting. Agent said, I, I have nowadays, though, with the pandemic, you have to turn the self-tape around within 24 hours sometimes. And, and th- that's no problem now because of that course. For me, it's just always that I that I feel like, oh, I don't have the lines perfectly. And it's so mm. beyond what, that's so beyond what I should be thinking. I should be thinking mm. about the character and just really getting into it. So anyway, not about me and my bad self-taping skills. <laughs> <laughs> So also you've done a lot of horror, which I'm really interested in. Oh yeah, I've done a bit of thriller. Yes. Thriller, okay. Oh yes. Yeah, and horror. I like the horror with the American accent, yeah. The the crone one in Los Angeles was the best horror. And I was the crone. I was a lovely old deer. I was beautifully ugly. It was brilliant. You know, it was great. Blood in my mouth, brilliant to live. I had this poor young lass tied up in the basement. And yeah, I was good. And I would come down, I would keep her. But my Alexia of life was music. And she was one of the top flute flutists. And so I kept her there because she had to play music, music to me. <laughs> I love that you went from this, oh, I felt like I was shy and as a teacher, very contained. And now Mm. you're the crone having someone locked up in your basement playing music (laughs) to keep you alive. (laughs) So that was great fun to play. I had to bite into a prosthetics hand, like a rubber hand, but it looked so real and shake my head like a dog. (laughs) 
I have to see that one too. It sounds brilliant. But the feature film has been written, apparently, but the writer and director is, has now gone back to Hungary, so I, I don't know what his plans are. So I think he, it's a project for the future. Fingers crossed. So what else? There's one that's in post-production. What's that one? It's called Square. It's a TV pilot based around university life in Bristol. Young student protagonist called Josh. But it's very current affairs covering mental health of students, which I think is quite, well, pertains a lot today to our our young people. Their sexuality, their issues there, it's all there. And current affairs, politics of the university. I think Owen Lewis and George Millman done a really good job. Owen's the main writer and George is the producer. So they raised £8,000 and we're starting to film at the end of April. That'll be good. And I'm the vice principal of the university, which isn't really that far removed from what I used to do. We talked about things that the roles that actually appeal, but is there anything that you, is there a role that you wouldn't play? No, there's nothing really. I think as an actor like yourself, you can, with the rehearsal or and the reading of the script, you can make it your own. You can make it how you see them to be, which is always exciting. And your directors have all gone along with that? <laughs> yes, a theatre director, when I was at the cockpit, luckily he's Meisner-based. So he didn't, he wasn't into blocking. It was perfect for me, I have to admit, because we just had to be aware of where each other was. And that went like a bomb really well so we did really well there so yeah no obviously I do listen to the director and there's blocking going on you do but as long as you've done your pre-work and you know who you are and what your character is where she's come from or or what they're going what they're going for it your career's really taken off and it's really exciting but is there something that if when times are tough you have a go-to or I just like to walk really fast just try and be yourself and and just take a deep breath take space make space for yourself do you agree? Absolutely. <laughs> As somebody who, you know, has done a lot of running, I feel like I've had this sort of ongoing issue with my, just that this, we can't figure it out. I've been to physio all this with a hip mm. issue. And for the longest time, if I couldn't run, it was, that's when like a part of me was missing because that's how I got out any kind of aggression. And obviously I've learned other ways. So I am more into meditation or mindfulness or other kinds of training I could do. But I definitely feel like I don't have that little part of me that can go out and just, I don't know, expend, expend energy. And yeah, even from a thought, it's not like I'm going out and sprinting all the time, but the idea that it's time for myself where I'm thinking, I don't know if you find this when you're walking, but just even creative ideas that come to me because my mind is in a different place or it's a little bit more of a blank slate. So the big dream is a West End theater show. Yes, not a nice multiple, a career on the West End. No, but just it would be nice to get a small role, even if it was a walk on with a tray. (laughs) That's how I feel about the National Theatre. I would do, just give me a walk across the stage, wave to someone. (laughs) I was in a play once where I was a trail runner or like a a fell runner. And basically all I did was run by and the guy was kind of weird. And I just said whatever I said to him. Yes. And that's the kind of thing that I'm like, yep, if I could just do that at the National. Yes. That'll be another like lid on the teacup. Is that what they say? Exactly. (laughs) A big bucket list checklist. I know this is not the time to ask in the world, but have you gotten to do your traveling? No, not on my own, unfortunately. (laughs) 
No. But I, um, my husband and I ended up shooting off to New Zealand many years ago and we got married out there. Oh. Still, yeah, I know. I've been to France and Paris, which is great. Lots of times Canada is still on the list. I haven't made it to Canada yet. And you did get to Rome for work oh, as an actor. Yes. So. Rome, yes. And, and Hungary for the race walking years ago representing team GB. Wait a minute. This is not fair because I'm like pulling all this out of you and you're like, I don't want to boast. And then you casually mention that you're in Hungary representing team GB. Uh, Small Mm. bucket list of my own and triathlon. You need to say a little something else about that because I need to know more. Um, (laughs) I I just managed to get out to Hungary back in 1986, many moons ago. And it was like the B squad. We were out. It was like club champions, but we were representing Great Britain. And back in 86, I love Hungarian. I love people anyway. But they were really, being an English person, standing on the line. English women, this is aside the walking now, we shave. We shaved our legs and we shaved our armpits. And (laughs) back then, it was actually the amount of young women who were my racing in the race with me. Come on, say, touch your legs. They couldn't believe the smoothness of my legs and the fact that I didn't have hairy armpits. But I think it's totally changed now. But this was back in 86. So now I'll ask you about the quote. Now that I'm now that I know about Team GB, amazing. Do you have a positive quote that you go to? As I always say, it's, I know it's cheesy, but it's a thing I do. There are so many quotes, but I one that struck a, a real chord with me was there was a Spanish cellist called Pablo Casals. He died back in 1973, but I think it's quite relevant for when I started acting because of my age. He was asked why he continued to practice at the age of 90. And he just replied, it's simply because I think I'm making progress. (laughs) This is why I love to ask about quotes, because it's so amazing, the kind of things that, that's such a simple thing to say, and we should all feel that way about our lives. Yeah. You don't stop because you get to a certain age. No. I love that. Practice doesn't make us perfect. I never believe that. I think practice always can make you better, a little bit better. Definitely. So I ask you for a quote, you brought a famous quote, and then that famous or a person of interest's quote, and then you just came up with your own quote, that <laughs> I'm, that's the one I'm going to steal. You perfect. Practice makes you better. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I love that too, because of what you said about not feeling the pressures as an actor who's gotten into it at a later stage, that you don't feel the pressures of being perfect, mm. which I think is the biggest challenge because people aren't perfect. How can you act like a person? another person and try to do it perfectly. Yes. Yeah. There are imperfections all the time. Very good. I'm just letting that settle. Mm. <laughs> Which can be good. Yeah. Yeah. If you have anything else that you would like to uh, share with our listeners, then by all means, the platform is your, the stage is yours. No, I think that was a perfect way to end. Wasn't it? Lovely moment there between us. Yes, I agree. To which I will just then say thank you so much for joining us. It's a privilege to hear your story. And it's a privilege to see someone starting at 50 and getting some real success as an actor. So thank you for inspiring me. I'm going to go out and get some film work. Yes, don't worry. You're young. You're still young. (laughs) You've got years behind me. So don't worry. Take care, Kristen. And thank you. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. plus. 
For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.